Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. We're going to wrap up our series today while you're waiting. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the Bible in Isaiah chapter 40. And so some of you want to shuffle around and try and find that. You can go ahead and do that uh, as we're going to the Lord in prayer to you. But let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather in your name. Thank you that there are people here who want to carry each other's burdens, uh, that want to love one another, confess sin to each other, to to serve one another, and and ultimately just to love each other. And Father, I pray that you would uh, bind us together as a church family with one another on mission for you. I pray as we open up your scriptures right now that you transform our thinking, you transform our hearts, you change our desires, make our desires your desires. We're so selfish. We want what we want. I've been going through this series on waiting. I don't know, it's an idol for me, time, wanting to control my time and not wanting to give my time. And and you've got us in this place of waiting, already not yet, this tension, waiting for you to come back, waiting for things to happen in our lives, and and Father, I pray that you give us a joy in waiting, that we'd have a peace in waiting, that we would have your patience. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was almost impossible to miss this week, but something significant happened on Monday. There was an eclipse. I don't know if you saw that or not. If you're on social media, if you went outside and took time to actually see that, I saw ABC uh, News 11 actually tweeted that someone gave birth to a child on Monday and named that baby Eclipse. If you are the mom that did that, we're glad that you made it to church today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, there were people that did all kinds of different things. A lot of people downloaded the song that hadn't been downloading the song. Uh, what is it? Uh, Total Eclipse of My Heart. I forgot the artist, but I read this week. Uh, it jumped to number one on iTunes. That song's from the 80s. It was lame then. <laughs> it's still lame, but people were downloading that song. It was exciting. How many of you actually saw the eclipse? Raise your hand here. Did anybody travel to the path of totality? Some people did right here in the front. They're like, me, I got it, I got it. We saw some people did that. I was reading uh, that experts are saying, so I guess they're social experts, the experts are saying that they believe that the eclipse that happened on Monday will lead to a whole new generation of eclipse chasers. I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but apparently a bunch of baby boomers back in 1979 kind of jumped onto this, this idea of going to see a total eclipse wherever it's at. And they happen around the world about every 16 months. And so some people traveled to, si- to Siberia. I was like, who's traveling to Siberia? A polar bear. At any rate, and there's uh, Tahiti, which I can understand that, why people would do that. The next total eclipse apparently is in the South Pacific Ocean, and there is a cruise to totality that you can take if you want to. It's in July uh, 2nd, 2019, I think is what I read. Uh, the cheapest room is $8,000 per person, $7,900 per person. And so you can start saving for that right now. There are people that spend thousands of dollars and make great sacrifices and travel and do all these things, and I think it's ironic then, they tell you, you can't really experience it unless you buy these cheap little glasses. <laughs> i got an $8,000 room, but i got to wear these things here. Aren't these pretty awesome? I'm making a fashion statement today. But you, so what happened uh, this week for me, I did not travel to the path of totality. Apparently, when you were there for at least a minute or two minutes, uh, you could take the glasses off and see what was happening. But for me, anytime I wanted to see something, I had to put these glasses on. And I went outside. I did not, you know, go Donald Trump. Hey, there it is. You know, when I got out there, I, I knew I'd read a little bit that I needed to, to grab my phone and do a selfie over my shoulder so that I could see what the sun looked like. And to be candid with you, it looked at 245 in Raleigh. Our office is over on Glenwood Avenue. It looked just like the sun looks at 5 o'clock, at, uh, you know, 7 o'clock. Uh, to me in those moments. And I also thought it was a little ironic, kind of a little side note. Wasn't it funny 
that the one day when the sun's the most covered is when everyone's talking about your face getting melted off by looking at the sun. I don't, that was just ironic to me, I thought. But when I put these glasses on and I looked up at the sun, it looked like a crescent moon. I think it was like 93% covered, somewhere over 90% covered. And I could see something with these glasses that I couldn't see without the glasses. I was thinking about the series that we're doing. And when we started this series, the very first week, I confessed my idolatry. I told you I'm like the worst person to talk about waiting. And I asked a little survey to see if there's anybody else in the audience like me. And I said, who here hates to wait? And about 90% of you raised your hand. This is not a strong number there, but 87.3%. Does that sound more official? Most people, the, the strong majority, said they hated to wait. I don't think what's going to happen is you're necessarily going to love waiting when we're done with this. But I think when we look at this passage of Scripture, it's going to function a lot like these glasses. That you're going to see something about waiting that maybe you've never seen before. In fact, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at, I'll give you the outline right now. There's two revelations. It reveals, the, our waiting on God reveals two things, one about us, one about Him. And then also we receive something, and it's that receiving of something that I think makes waiting on God a wonder, kind of like some people were so amazed at seeing this eclipse, that they would then, for the rest of their lives, they're going to be chasing these eclipses. I don't think that most of us are going to be waiting chasers, like we're going to start chasing after this. But I think God could do something supernatural in our hearts, and that's my hope as we go to Isaiah chapter 40 today. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to be reading to you verses 27 through 31. It's really a summary of the whole chapter, but to give you a, an idea of the book of Isaiah, just on your own, for one, when you study it on your own, but also to get a grasp of what's happening here, some people avoid Isaiah because it seems to be such an overwhelming book, and there's this confusing stuff in it. Let me give you a structural breakdown of the book of Isaiah, and, and let me first just say this. The chapters and verses in the Bible are not inspired. Okay, God's word, it was inspired, given to us by God, authoritative in our lives. But the chapters and verses were added later by men. But it's kind of easy to understand the book of Isaiah if I use the chapters and verses to show you the structure. And so if you look at the Old Testament, it's 39 books. The New Testament's 27 books. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's broken down into two sections, really. The first section of the book of Isaiah is the first 39 chapters. Amen. Kind of like the Bibles. The Old Testament's 39 chapters, the New Testament's 27 chapters, and the New Testament, 27 chapters, obviously, focused on Christ. The, the book of Isaiah, in chapter 40 through 66, the last 27 chapters, are some of the most Christ-centric passages of Scripture in all of the Old Testament. And so it's in, the, it's, the early, it's in other places in the Old Testament, too. It's in the earlier parts. But the first part of Isaiah is all about God's judgment and condemnation for the sin of His people. First 39 chapters. The last 27 chapters are about his comfort, his deliverance, and the redeemer that's going to come. And so in Isaiah, you see in Isaiah chapter 7, prophecy of the virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter 40, John the Baptist is, is alluded to. There's going to be one in the wilderness that comes declaring that the path of the Lord, he's coming. In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the clearest explanation of the death of Jesus Christ, that he's going to die for our sins, is in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the message that he preached, he starts preaching in Luke chapter 4. It's in Isaiah chapter 60. The end of the book of Isaiah talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And so it starts with John the Baptist. It ends with the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's uncanny parallels. But all this stuff is said about Jesus, and it's 700 years before he comes. Talk about waiting. In every message in this series, I've asked you the question, what are you waiting on God for? And I've asked it this way. I've said, what's the most important thing in your life that God hasn't done yet? And I ask you to write it down. Some of you today might be your first day, and so maybe you write that down. But some of you, you've been thinking about that. And some of you, it's, it's wanting to get pregnant. That's a struggle. That's a hard wait. Some of you, it's marriage. Sometimes you want, you want God to do something in your spouse's life. 
And your spouse is looking at you like, you been, did you write down me? That's what... Or you might want somebody to be saved. All of us are waiting for something. We live in the tension of the already not yet. So we all have sin in our lives still. We're waiting to be delivered from sin. We're waiting to be taken from this place. This isn't our home. What are you waiting on? These people, it was 700 years. None of us have been waiting that long. <laughs> and what happens in chapter 40 is that they're going, to have a, they're going to go into exile. There's going to be punishment for their sin. It's going to get terrible. But Isaiah writes to give them words of comfort. In the first 11 verses, he tells them about their deliverance. And then in the next verses, verses 12 through 26, he tells them that God's able to deliver them. And verses 27 through 31 are the summary of the whole chapter, but the hinge of the whole deal is waiting. Look at it with me. Isaiah chapter 47. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? And so that's God's people. He's using those names really synonymously for God's people. And this is what they're saying. My way is hidden from the Lord. Have you ever felt like God forgot you? My way is hidden from the Lord. He doesn't even see what's going on in my life. And my right is disregarded by my God. Where are you, God? Where are you in this? And Isaiah responds, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Verse 30, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen? It's a great verse. Uh, in fact, there's Christian schools all over this country that take this verse and it is the theme verse for their basketball team. <laughs> Runners love this verse. I like to run. and so I've, I've misquoted this verse myself. I remember a race that I was in uh, two years ago. It was a road race, and I wanted to die as I was coming to the finish line. It was going so bad that there was one point uh, when I was running in this race where I went to the, the aid station and I grabbed an orange. And I had read on the instructions for the race before that if you litter, you can be disqualified. So I took orange peels and I was throwing them down in the path. I'm like, somebody disqualify me. I'm too proud to quit, but I want to just collapse at this moment. And when I got to the last about mile, mile and a half of this race, it was this verse that came to mind. I was like, Lord, renew my strength. I'm not a youth anymore, but still, renew my strength. I'm going to mount up with wings like eagles. I'm going to run and not grow weary. I'm going to walk and not faint. Ironically, I misquoted the verse, missed a part of it. I passed out at the finish line. Maybe that was my punishment. So I'm <laughs> misquoting the verse. But the part that I skipped over was the key part of the verse. Verse 31, but they who wait on the Lord, their strength is renewed. None of us like to wait. And some of us live our lives like I was in that race. I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. I don't have time to wait. I'm in a race. I don't have time to wait. I got stuff to do. But it's only those who wait that get the renewed strength. The waiting here is the hinge of this whole passage of Scripture. And so what is he talking about when he says to wait? Some of you might have the NIV translation. The NIV actually translates it, those who hope in the Lord. That's not a bad translation. They're both true. They're both accurate. See, the word for wait is so nuanced that there's not one word in English that translates it well. And so the, the idea with waiting, there's hope. Remember in the second week when we talked about why we wait and we talked about hope, we talked about how biblical hope is different than the hope that we have. Oftentimes we have, you know, I hope NC State wins the national championship. I hope that Coach K stays at Duke forever. I hope that, you know, I hope this politician's going to fulfill his promises. I hope, but we have no certainty in those hopes. 
but with a biblical hope. When you read the word hope in the Bible, there's absolute certainty because the hope's based on the promises of God. You may not have experienced all of the things yet, but it's as if they've happened because God promised them and he's trustworthy. So when we hope, we hope with absolute certainty. That's the hope that the NIV is trying to get across. The waiting, when the ESV translates it waiting, there's a resting in the Lord. There's a trusting him. See, the word for wait and trust are almost synonymous. And so to talk about wait, it's to trust, it's to hope, it's to rest, it's to surrender to him. And so I wrote a definition that I wanted to try and capture all four messages that we've done in this series, and I just wrote this, and you can jot it down if you want to, it's not anything unique, but it's uh, patiently resting in absolute certainty and complete surrender to God's perfect plan and God's perfect timing. Those last two things are key. Patiently resting in absolute certainty and complete surrender to God's perfect plan and God's perfect timing. Might not be your timing, might not be your plan, but it's resting in with absolute certainty God's going to come through with his perfect plan and his perfect timing. And what happens when we do that is we reveal some things about us and about God. The first thing that we reveal about us is that waiting on God reveals our weakness, and that's a glorious thing actually. Waiting on God reveals our weaknesses. See, anytime you wait, you're revealing weakness to some degree. You're acknowledging that you're not able to do everything. And so if you wait in the waiting room at the doctor's office, because you need the doctor to either write a prescription, he'll give you a diagnosis, do something for you. You're waiting for a mechanic to fix your car. It's because you can't fix your car on your own. You, you don't have the time to do it. You don't have the ability to do it. Whatever reason, you're acknowledging a weakness. When we wait upon God, we're acknowledging we need him. When we wait upon God, we're acknowledging we trust him. And so I'm not just talking about waiting on the you know, the results of whatever it is that you wrote down that you're waiting for. I'm talking about waiting on the Lord. When you wait on God, you're acknowledging your weakness before him. And let me say this before we jump back in the passage. There's two kinds of weaknesses. There's one is that just that we're not omnipotent. We're not all powerful. And so you hear people say, well, I'm human. That's true. That is one kind of weakness. There's another kind of weakness that we're responsible for. It's our sin. And we're all weak in this way. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody slanders. Everybody gossips. Everybody lies. Everybody lusts. Everybody gets jealous. I didn't do all those. You've done one of them. (laughs) We all sin. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. That is an acknowledgement of our weakness. You can't even be a Christian if you don't acknowledge your weakness. You start by acknowledging your sin and need for a Savior. So why is it that we think that living the Christian life would be any different than the way that we began the Christian life? We must acknowledge our weaknesses. But we talked about there's something we can do other than wait on God. The two temptations are we give up or we rush ahead of God. Both of them say something about our view of God. When we rush ahead of God, we're saying, we don't think we're weak. We don't need you. I got this. When we give up, we're saying, I don't trust you. I don't trust you're going to come through. I don't trust your timing. I don't trust your plan. So we give up. We don't trust God. When we rush ahead, we don't need God. But here in this passage of Scripture, it says everybody needs to wait. It points out weaknesses. It says in verse 30, even the youths shall faint and be weary. And so here he uses circumstances to acknowledge this. There's really two things that God uses, two lenses, if you're going to use, you know, if we're going to use the glasses analogy, two lenses that God gives us in life to reveal our weaknesses. One is Scripture, one's experiences. One's Scripture, one's our circumstances. The circumstances for the people in this passage of Scripture go back to verse 27. They felt like God had forsaken them. They're feeling like the weight of their sin is so heavy. God doesn't even see the difficulty they're now going through. And some of you, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to be in a spot where you feel like you just can't, you you can't fix it. That's too much. Marriage is too gone. Just give up. Done with it. Sickness, there's no sign of healing. 
You feel so lonely, so isolated, you're never going to have a baby. It's when life becomes overwhelming is the kind of situation they're in. So in verse 27, they say, are we hidden from the Does God not even see us? Am I disregarded? Has he forsaken us? And then you get, it's like words of comfort when he says, hey, even youth. Youth get tired and weird. Everybody. And he takes this illustration of youth and he's saying, even people in their prime, when they have the most energy, the most physical ability, they're still weak, is what he's saying. So some of you are parents, and you think about little kids. Do you ever watch, like, grandparents watch little kids? And they're just like, man, if I just had a tenth of that energy. Like, I just, they're bouncing around, they're jumping on the bed, they're wrestling each other, they're hiding on, and that's just bedtime, right? Like, there's just all this stuff going on. It's the end of the day. But even they have to sleep. Did you know sleep's an acknowledgement of our weakness, that we're not God? Because God doesn't have to sleep. And so you take an Olympic athlete and you say, oh, just, they can do so much, they jump so high, run so fast, go so long, never get injured, whatever the deal is. They still sleep. They need food. They have to have Gatorade, apparently, from the commercials. God doesn't. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need rest. He doesn't need a, a snack. He, he provides his own strength to himself, not from some source. It's our dependence. It shows our weaknesses. So the scripture points that out. You just go to this passage, not just right here where it says in verse 30, but if you go through all of chapter 40, and we don't have time to read all of chapter 40, but you start glancing through and he's showing our weakness, God's greatness. Our weakness, God's greatness. Go back to verses 6 and 7. It says, all flesh is like grass. And then he says, the grass withers and the flower fades. It's going to go away. You go to, go to verse 12. Verse 12 says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Do you know how much water there is? Like, think about how terrified we are of what, the hurricane coming, how terrified we are of what. You ever stand at the edge of the ocean, and you look, and it's like, I just can't even see the end of it, and that's only part of what's on the earth. I looked up this week how much water there is on the earth. I couldn't remember this number. It's too big. So the volume of water on this earth would be 332.5 million cubic miles. Well, what does that mean? I don't even understand that. A cubic mile of water equals more than 1.1 trillion gallons. So one is 1.1 trillion gallons, and the amount of water on the earth is 332.5 million cubic miles. <laughs> That's more than the national debt. You're beyond, my brain will explode. I'm the E on the calculator. It just doesn't happen. But then at verse 12, it says that God holds that in the hollow of his hand. How much bigger is God than us? And we think that we got this, we think that we can handle this. And you go to verse 15. Go look at verse 15 if you have your Bible. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. The na- all, not just the people in this church, not just one person, not your family, not this nation, all the nations together, all the nations, if they were all united, are like a drop in a bucket. So small, so small. Verse 22. He's above the circle of the earth. His inhabitants are like grasshoppers like little insects. Verse 26, we talk about, I read that in the path of totality, in some spots it would get so dark that you could see stars. I don't know if you experienced that or not. And so, see, some people say you could see Mars, Jupiter. I didn't see anybody mention Pluto. I don't know if they're getting credit yet again or not. I don't know. You see these planets out there. And when we look to the stars, there are millions of them. Millions of them. And the Bible tells us that God knows them by name. And here these people are going, you've forgotten me. And the scriptures going, no, you're just weak. 
You get tunnel vision. You get in the situation, and the scriptures revealing to us our weakness. Romans 3.23 tells us our weakness. All sin falls short of the glory of God. Here it says, even you get tired and weary. The scriptures reveal it, but not just scriptures, but also our circumstances. In fact, that word for weary in verse 30, even you shall faint and be weary. The word for tired there is like an inerrant, like we're just not omnipotent. We just, we don't, we don't have power. So in, inerrantly, we get tired. We have to sleep. But weary there, the word actually, it's a different word than just tired, so why two words if they mean the same thing? They don't. Weary there is that life's hardnesses have weighed in on us. The pressure's too much. So let me tell you this, and it might sound discouraging at first, but the the point is for your good long term. Don't ever believe someone that tells you God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not true. People who say it mean well, so you don't have to like, you know, truth police. Hey, don't say that, my pastor said. Just know, just know. Just know when someone says that, that's not true. Circumstances do weigh in. It is too much. They will crush us. It's overwhelming. Some people carry secrets. It's just such a burden for them to carry. Some people have had terrible experiences in their life, their past. Some people have done things. Things have been done to them. It's more than any human, any one individual can handle. In fact, the Apostle Paul even says that about in his own life. So Apostle Paul writes a bunch of like 13 of the 27 New Testament books. He, he writes them. And so this is a guy, his spiritual giant. And he says, God gave me more than I could handle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says it like this. We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, talking to his friends in Corinth, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So this is circumstances, not just something he read in his Bible and wants to tell them about. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength, more than we could handle. How bad was it? We despaired of life itself. Paul wanted to die. And it wasn't the glorious like we read. To die would be gain. No, I want out of this place. It's too much. Then he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but there was a reason. That was to make us rely not on ourselves to show that we're weak, but on God who raises the dead. I remember when I was preaching that verse one time about six years ago, I think it was six, seven years ago, we were doing a series called Lies We Live By as a church, and then one of the lies we were talking about was God giving us more than we could handle. People would always say, no, God won't give you more than you can handle. Great intentions, just not true. And I was traveling that week. And so I was in Dallas at the beginning of the week. I got a little bit behind in my study. And so I was getting on this airplane to fly back to Raleigh. And I was like, all right, normally, you know, I'd be home in bed. I can, I can make up some time. I'll do some reading that I hadn't done. And I mean, a lot of times I get on a plane. I'm like, all right, Lord, give me somebody to share the gospel with. I'm excited. I like people. But I was in one of those moods, and some of you have probably done this and feel a little guilty as Christians, like, just do not talk to me. I don't want anybody to talk to me. And so I sit down. The guy sits next to me. He's chatty, Kathy. So I'm like, oh, man. I've got to pull out the defense mechanisms. This is a great one, by the way. <laughs> Pull out a Bible, and people get quiet. And so I pulled out the Bible, and he's like, oh, are you a Christian? I'm like, oh, man, Lord, if you're going to give me somebody I have to talk to, can they at least be a non-Christian so I can tell them about Jesus? Now i got this Christian next to me, and he's going to want to talk. So I decided to pull out some Bible commentaries. If you want people to really think you're weird, pull out some like, books that nobody's reading on the Bible. And so I pulled those out, and I'm trying to read, and we kind of went through this pattern for a little while where I'd read a little bit, and then he asked me some question. I'd be like, ah, I'll answer the question. Back to my, can you see I'm doing something? <laughs> it was kind of... And then God convicted my heart and said, maybe your sermon prep's sitting right next to you. And so I started talking to this guy and said, you know, I pastor this church in the North Raleigh, and he lived in the South Raleigh area, and we were talking, and he said, what are you preaching on this week? I said, I'm preaching on when God gives us more than we can handle. And he just sighed. And he said, I'm in a spot right now where my wife and I have more than we can handle. Sometimes as a pastor, people just open up to you just because you're a pastor. And they'll tell you stories. And I've heard some terrible stories. This was one of the worst. This guy started to share with me. He said, maybe you read some of my, the details on the News and Observer. And he said, 
Um, but his son getting involved with drugs and all the difficulties they had gone through and told me, you know, different folks, some folks that I knew as part of this deal and telling me horrible stories with his son. So you can imagine if your son was involved with an addiction like this. And he said, we were afraid for our lives of our son. And one night he came into our house and he was going to kill us and had us trapped in our master bedroom. And he said, and I had to kill him. And he shot his own son. And he was living with the repercussions of that. And then he just said to me, it's more than my wife and I can handle. And I don't know where you're at and what you've been through. Probably not that story. But God will allow you to have more than you can handle. He'll never give you more than he can handle. See, he is great. We are weak. And we get to the point where our weakness is then seen. We, have, we all have to get to, to even become a Christian, you have to get to that point. So, of course, in your Christian journey, you're going to come to that point again. I don't know if it'll be cancer. I don't know if you'll lose a baby. I don't know what will happen. Your marriage won't work out the way you want it to. Maybe just your dreams haven't been fulfilled, and you feel the pressure of that. It's like, why is life not the way I wanted it to be? But you get to that spot where it's like, I, I can't do this. That's a glorious place. Because in your weaknesses, then God's glorified. Later in the same book, in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says he had his thorn in the flesh. Did he ask God to take it away? God said no. He asked God to take it away again. God said no. He asked God to take it away again. God said no. He got the message. And then he says this. He says, so my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And listen to this next line. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. He's boasting of his weaknesses. Who does that? Florida State and Alabama are going to play here pretty soon. I don't know if we got any Roll Tide fans here. Roll Tide, anybody? No, okay. We got a couple, got a couple. Any Florida State fans? There was a guy in the first service started doing the chant. They got one in the back. I see you, Mike Shred. I got you. You know, oh, we got the chant. Oh. You know, they're going to come. I bet you there'll probably be like a scuffle as the game's getting started. The intensity will be high. They'll be playing music. It's kind of what happens. I don't think any guy's going to come on and be like, you are bigger than me. You are stronger than me. You are faster than me. I'm getting my butt whooped. I bet no one says that. Paul says, I'm boasting in my weaknesses. Who does that? That's not this world's way of thinking. He says here, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'm not depending upon myself. It's like, God, I don't need you. I got this. I'll call you when I need you. He says in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong, because I receive his strength. And so let me ask you this as an application question. How are you weak? In what ways are you weak? Those are ways for God to be glorified in your life because those are ways that God can show off his strength in your life. When you think you don't need him, what's he, what, how's, he, how's he showing? Hey, I really blessed that guy. See, God can be glorified in multiple ways. You, you have cancer and he heals you of cancer, shows his power. You have cancer and he doesn't heal you of cancer, but he keeps you through the process. You remain faithful. That reveals his faithfulness. His empowering you. His guiding you. And so one of the things that God reveals is our weaknesses. The other thing that God reveals when we wait upon him is his greatness. When we wait upon God, it reveals God's greatness. And so go back to verse 27. They're at this spot where the circumstances are too much. It's more than they can handle. They feel like God is for Where are you in this? God. Verse 27. Why do you say, my people, O Jacob, why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right is disregarded by my God. And notice what he says in verse 28 next. He doesn't say to them, let's talk about your circumstances. He doesn't say anything about the circumstances. He doesn't say, hey, somebody's got it harder than you, as if that helped anyone ever. 
He doesn't say, hey, it's going to get better. Here's what you need to know about this passage of Scripture. Oftentimes when we read an Old Testament passage, it's like, you know, reading David and Goliath. We've got to understand the customs of what was happening in that time and how does that connect to our time. Reading Abraham's story or reading whatever's going on. He's writing to people who haven't experienced these things yet. Some of you here today are not going through the hardest circumstances of your life. But mark your Bible right here because it will happen. And some of you, when you mark your Bible, you come back to it, you've just gone through something. He's writing to people at this time that it's about 100 years before they're going to go into exile, and then the exile is going to take 70 years. And so he's writing to people right now that are going to be dead before some of the promises he mentioned in the first 11 verses are fulfilled. And so he doesn't talk to them about their circumstances. He talks about the God that they will meet in those circumstances. He, he lists, kind of like we did with the eclipse, we looked up, he lifts their eyes. Like, let's get off the circumstances, let's look at God. And so they're saying here, God, have you forsaken me? This is too much? And then he says, let me tell you about what you know. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And then he talks about God. It's all, he gets theological, not in his circumstances here. He's like, take a look at God. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding, it's unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And so it's, it's kind of like what happened this week with the eclipse. You know, you, people looked up, and some people, it was, the, the idea was, you know, there's all this mess here, and, and we're talking about racism, and all this stuff happened with North Korea, and all kinds of terrible stuff happened here, and it's like, there's something bigger. They might not be Christians, they're looking at creation. Did you hear what Greg Fischel said? It's one of our, our local weather guys. And he said, that, he said that the science, he's always believed that science, he said this on the air, and so it's on Twitter, and so if you go look it up, WRL, he says, uh, I've always thought that science reveals God's creation. Amen. And there was another guy uh, that I saw, David Carr. He's an ex-NFL quarterback. So not Derek Carr, but David Carr. David Carr uh, said that the sun basically can melt our faces off from 192 million miles away, and we think that we're going to casually stroll into the presence of our creator. And they look at these things, and they're, they're pointing to the Lord. That's what they're saying. What Isaiah is doing here is he's not talking about creation. He's talking about the creator. He's pointing us to the glory of the Lord. Maybe because what he experienced in Isaiah chapter 6, one of the most famous passages in the whole book, is when Isaiah gets called to be God's mouthpiece. It's when he's in the throne room of God and he looks up and he says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. And there's these angels, hard to describe what they're even like, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And he becomes overwhelmed with his sinfulness. Because that's what happens when we encounter God. He's so holy, First Timothy tells us he dwells in unapproachable light. So we talk about putting on glasses so we can look at the sun. We can't approach, we would be annihilated coming into God's presence if it wasn't for his grace. But he's gracious with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He has an angel touch his lips and allows this unclean man who said, I live among a people with unclean lips, speak to him. And at the end of the passage, he says something that every Christian should say. Here I am. He's waiting on God. He's surrendering before God. Here I am, you, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, I'm yours, God. Do you know what that is? That's what we talked about in our definition. His perfect plan, his perfect timing, here I am. And he's pointing the people to that. When they're in the midst of their trials, it's too much, have you forgotten me? And he's saying, everlasting God, creator of the universe, can't even understand his wisdom. It's like John in the New Testament. Think about John, he walks with Jesus throughout his life. He sees the resurrected Christ. But then in the book of Revelation, when he sees Christ glorified, he falls down as though dead in chapter 1. 
And then in chapter 4, he starts to show us the glory of God. He takes us into the throne room of God. If you want to know what heaven is like, read Revelation chapter 4. It's the greatest glimpse that we get. He tries to describe colors. He can't even describe the colors. He says there's this rainbow that's encircling the throne of God. So not a rainbow like we think of, like a half arc through the sky. And he says this emerald rainbow, it's encircling, a circle all the way around. He's trying to describe this glory, this light that's coming from the throne. And he says there's these four creatures, and he can't describe them. Try and, try and draw a picture of what you read about in Revelation chapter 4. They're, it's crazy. He says, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What's the first thing Isaiah says? He's the everlasting God. And then he goes on in Revelation chapter 4 and he talks about the elders falling down before his feet and says, worthy is the one who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. You read what happens here. He's pointing us to the glory of God. So what happens when we wait upon God is it reveals God's greatness. And you see how, look at the end, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. He just walks through these characteristics. The Lord is the everlasting God. What does that mean? It means he's eternal. And many of us, when we think of God's eternity, we think about the fact that he'll, he'll never stop being. He's going to live forever. And maybe we even think, we go so far as to think, he always was. He was never created. He's always existed. And that's about as far as we go. Have you thought about the fact that God is outside of time? That God is ever-present currently, right now, in the future. Tomorrow, he's there. In the past, he's there. Outside of time. And so how silly must it be when we pray to him, God, do it now. You missed it. God's not up in heaven going, I should have done that yesterday. Maybe I can fix it all. He's outside of time. So his timing is perfect. In the fullness of time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He knew the exact moment in history, Galatians chapter 4, when to send his son into this earth to die for your sins. You didn't even exist yet. And he's dying for your sins. How does that happen with a God who's bound by time? He's outside of time. He's died for the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow, that you'll commit in two years from now. He's died for those. He died for your whole past. He paid the penalty for your sins and my sins before we ever walked on this earth. He's eternal. He's outside of time. But not just that. It says that he's the creator. So these people are asking, my way is hidden from the Lord. There's nowhere in God's creation that anything's hidden from him. He knows all, he's omnipresent. And so not only is he outside of time, he's all-powerful, all-present, and then look at the next one. It says understanding is unsearchable. It says wisdom. So we talk about trusting his timing. What about trusting his plan? See, he knows stuff that if we, we got questions for God, all of us have questions at times. Why'd you allow this? What about this? What's happening here? What do you want? Sometimes if he gave us the answer, our brain would blow up. It's just a, it's a category that we can't even think in the things that he's doing in his plan of redemption. So if his... His understanding is unsearchable. Like we can't do enough research to get a grasp of his understanding. And he says earlier in this passage, we talk about our weaknesses. Who's, who serves as God's consultant? He's not calling any of us. He's got this wisdom so we can trust his plan. And when we trust his plan and when we trust his timing, it reveals his greatness. We're saying that he's worthy to be waited on. Because you wait longer for somebody that's worth waiting for. He's worthy to be waited for. We're revealing his greatness. We're revealing our weakness. But the last one is the most glorious to me. It says when we wait on God, he strengthens us. But only if we wait on him. Verse 31. So when we wait on God, God works for us. When we wait on God, God strengthens us, is the third point. Verse 31, it says this. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That word for renew there is the idea of exchange. 
And so I had one guy that I was talking to, he was working on the setup team and driving the trailer today, and then he went on a run before church started, and there's a shower actually here, because we have a locker room since we made it to school, and so he was getting showered out and changed into his church clothes. He exchanged his sweaty workout clothes for church clothes, whatever he decided to wear to church. That's the kind of exchange that's being talked about here. That's the kind of exchange that gets talked about in the New Testament, when we're supposed to put on Christ, exchange our old life for Christ's life for us. And if you think about Christianity, the whole thing is an exchange, We exchange our sin for his forgiveness. That's a pretty good trade. We exchange our efforts for what he's already done for us on the cross. We exchange our desire for performance for the performance he's already done. So we we can stop performing. We can stop achieving. He's achieved it all. What we need to start doing is looking at not the gospel. is not just the beginning of our faith. Looking at all of our lives through the gospel. And it's all a big exchange. Part of the exchange here is we exchange our weariness for his strength. But there's a criteria for this exchange to take place, and it's waiting. It's not everybody who's weary gets God's strength. Not every Christian who's weary gets God's strength. Here's the criteria. They who wait for the Lord. What does it mean to wait? I'll read you the definition I read earlier. Patiently resting in absolute certainty, there's hope, and complete surrender, there's trust, to God's perfect plan and God's perfect timing. And, and here's where... Here's where we need the glasses. Here's where we need the scripture to to inform us of something we will not see on our own. Those who do that, God miraculously serves those people. God's the one who does the work. Did you see that passage that that Pastor Seth put up earlier in Isaiah chapter 64? It's an amazing passage. No ear has heard, no eye has seen what God will do for those who wait upon him. So God's the one working. He acts, the passage says, or works for those who wait. I remember before we started this series, I was listening one time to a message by John Piper, and it was Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4. And he said something in that passage of Scripture that I thought, I, you know, I, I think John Piper's a great teacher, loves, knows the Bible, smart guy, but I was like, that is wrong. Like, that is not right, what you're saying. And he was talking about how God is different than any other God. The God of the Bible is different than God of the Muslims, God of the Buddhists, God of the Hindus, God of any other God that you're going to get. They, all those gods have the same thing in common. They're gathering slaves to come work for them. They're so powerful, they're so great, they're so to be feared that, that slaves should come work for him. And said so the God of the Bible works for his people. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, that's, not, that's not right. Because that, to me, that seemed like it was demeaning to God. But to me, it clicked this week for me. There was it's, uh, Pastor Dan, our youth pastor, is teaching on Romans chapter 12 today. In Romans chapter 12, the first uh, part of it says that we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's an illustration of how my mind has not been transformed by the scriptures, but instead I've been conformed to this culture. Is that my thinking was, if someone's the serving one, they're being demeaned. It's the person who's being served that has the more power and receives more glory. And, but now I've taught you as a church before passages from the New Testament. The last shall be first. You know, the greatest will be the least. But when I was reading, thinking about this concept of God serving us, it was a, such a paradigm shift for me. When I, when I thought about the passage in Luke, in Luke chapter 22, the Lord has just had the Lord's Supper with his disciples. They start arguing about who's the greatest, and he says to them, who's greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? And he says, isn't it the one who, who sits at the table? You think about going to a restaurant, maybe you go to eat after church today. Isn't it the person sitting at the Because that person's working for them. It's work, that's like your employee for those moments. And then Jesus says, but I serve. He's the one who receives the glory. And you think about what happens when he takes these weak people. They're like grasshoppers. He doesn't need consulti- consultation for them. He doesn't need us. 
And they start looking at all the scriptures that talk about God doesn't need us to serve him. Acts chapter 17. God doesn't need human hands to serve him. But then you see all the passages where God says that he serves us, that we have a God that actually works for us. And so you look, other, Isaiah 64, 4, I already shared with you. How about this one? Psalm 50, verse 15, really illustrates the whole process. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. I get the glory when I work for you because you're so weak that my greatness is then put on display. I want to serve you. God actually serves his people that wait on him. He works for us. There's no greater illustration than this than the gospel. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 10? I didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. The cross was him doing the work for us that we couldn't do on our own. That's the beginning of our faith. Why do we think then in the faith journey it changes at some point and all of a sudden it's dependent upon us like God needs us? See, the people who get it, they wait, they wait. That is the wonder of waiting. That God reveals something to us we couldn't see. We couldn't see apart from the scriptures. And I hope we'll give you some joy in the times of waiting. But it's only those who wait. Remember what to wait is to surrender. So will you surrender your timing? Will you surrender your plan? Will you surrender your life? Some of you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. Surrender your life to Jesus. You don't need to come up here and get community today. You don't need to keep coming to this church. You don't need to become more moral. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's an act of surrender. Some of you here are believers in Jesus, but you've got other things you hope in. In fact, maybe what you wrote down on that piece of paper is your idol. If I had the baby, if I got married, if I got this job, if I had this promotion, it won't deliver. Eventually, by not getting it or getting it, you'll figure that out. Why don't you surrender it today? Because only those who actually surrendered him, to trust him, to hope in him, that rest in him, that are the ones that receive this strength. Where you, otherwise, I'll let you want to work on your own. I'll let you keep working. I'll let you keep getting exhausted. Who was Jesus speaking to in Matthew chapter 11 when he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. A lot of them were moral people, church people, who are in their own strength trying to obey all of the Bible. Saying, you exhausted yet? Come to, but you have to come to me to get rest. Come to me.